Good morning. So like Pastor Eric said, uh, my name is Kevin Drake. I am just a group leader here, a group coach, um, but I'm excited to share about joy in our series in Advent. Uh, more importantly, the practice of joy. How do we practice joy? And to start, I want us to think all, all of us, think back to Christmas as a kid. I'm sure we all have really great memories, hopefully most of them great, maybe some bad ones too. But think back, think back to that one present, that one present that eclipses all the others, okay? What was it that you opened up underneath that Christmas tree and it just made you so happy? I asked my wife about her favorite gift. It was a pair of Christy Yamaguchi, I had to write it down, rollerblades. Um, <laughs> white with teal and purple straps. Um, she would ride them around her parents' unfinished basement. Um, she wanted to be a figure skater. But I want to hear what some of yours are. Shout them out. What was something you received as a kid that made you super happy? Ping pong table. Ping pong table. Skateboard. Skateboard. Sims computer game. Sims computer game. There we go. That's a good one. So I remember mine, and my parents did the surprise right, okay? I don't know if anybody's uh, parents had these notes on how to do the, the special presents, okay? So they let the kids rip up all the wrapping paper, open up all the gifts, and then, but they, you keep one back, okay? You keep one in reserve. This one's in the present. They say, hey, I think Santa left a present in the basement. I think he left one down there. So I had three siblings. We all four of us just bumble down the stairs. You know what's down there? I'm going to date myself to the, the Gen Xers and the Zoomers. Uh, a Nintendo 64, okay? All right, this changed the game, okay, for sibling rivalries, for fun and enjoyment. It came with Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, and Mario Kart 64, okay? So the Christmas pack. What, what a Christmas. And these moments of happiness as kids are about receiving something wonderful, something that really delights our hearts, our hearts are full, and that's exactly what... Joy is. We don't have to get fancy with a definition of joy. It's just an experience of great pleasure or happiness. And God says that he's a God of joy. And in our text today, we're going to see joy told. Joy shown as what God is bringing into the world and what our hope is. And we're talking about practicing joy. That is the series we're in. So practices of Advent. Practices of hope, peace, joy, and love. So let's get into our passage. Isaiah 35, we're going to start in verse 5. Isaiah 35, verse 5, 5 through 10. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And, the, and a, highway, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray." No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
This is the word of the Lord. So the two questions from this passage that I want to think about is how do we actually practice joy and why is it so important? How do we practice joy and why is it so important? Because in Isaiah, Isaiah is pointing to the newness of life that's going to be coming. For the Israelites, this was the promised Messiah. He's coming one day to um, free them from all oppression and bring everlasting joy. And we know that that Messiah is Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in Advent. So we're waiting for this new joy to come. But we're waiting. So how do we practice that joy now? And I think this is a great time of year to be asking this question because there's so much joy around us happening. It's a, time, a season of joy, glad tidings, joy to the world. It's in all of our songs. Um, it's on posters. It's on sayings. There's presents. There's good food. There's so many parties going on. You know, uh, We've got work parties, school parties for our kids, church parties, one tonight, ladies, another plug. Uh, we've got family get-togethers. But having our calendars filled with parties doesn't always bring joy and happiness, does it? Even though that's what it's supposed to be all about. Sometimes we find ourselves saying things like, we just need to get through the holidays. Sometimes it's a season to be endured instead of enjoyed. And one reason I think that this kind of happens for us, why we find ourselves trying to recover after the holidays is because this concentration of parties between Thanksgiving and New Year's, this concentration of of attending food-filled, booze-filled parties and gatherings with people we sometimes only barely like, isn't all that healthy for us. This concentration is so intense. We get partied out. And one of the reasons we get partied out, I think, is that while, yes, God is a God of joy... And the Bible very specifically says God is a God of feasts. For the ancient Israelites, there were, just, there were multiple feasts, seven very specific feasts that they were to observe, and, and, and there were parties, okay? There were celebrations. So God is all about the feast, but those feasts only really took up a couple you know, months out of the year for the Jewish calendar. There was also the rest of the year. There's seasons of fast. God is the God of the feast, and God is a God of the fast. The holidays are so exhausting sometimes because by the end of it, we drank a case of wine, downed our weight in dips, and started to turn our nose up at holiday roasts because it just becomes too much. And this rhythm of feasting and fasting, while it makes a ton of sense about food, it's, it's even more than that about all aspects of our life. There are seasons of extraordinary and seasons of ordinary. There are seasons of abundance and seasons of want. But God is the God of both, and he wants us to experience and enjoy both. So let's talk about this feast rhythm. That's the fun one, right? (laughs) Getting to feast, getting to experience a lot of life. I want us to envision the abundance of life. When I was reflecting on this, one of the things that came to mind um, was the movie Ratatouille, Okay, there's a scene at the very end, if you haven't seen it, there's a rat in the guy's hat, he's doing all the cooking, okay, and there's this, the villain is this food critic named Ego, and he's got it out for Linguini the chef, and he's going to write his review, and so he's very critical, and what ends up happening at the very end, they end up wowing him. They send out a dish, 
and he eats the dish, and he's prepared to just tear it to bits, the food critic. But what happens? He melts in his chair. Okay, he lets out just this sigh of satisfaction. The sigh of satisfaction. And that's what I want us to think about, is what are these immense experiences of pleasure? Things that make us say, oh, this is so good. In food, in friendship, in family. They're mountaintop experiences, aren't they? They're mountaintop experiences. Maybe for feasts, it's a holiday roast, perfectly medium rare, homemade pasta, and a rich butter sauce. I don't know what it is for you. These mountaintop experiences, they're not always food. We have births of children, weddings, proposals, promotions, beating the Chiefs for the AFC Championship. I wouldn't know that. I'm not a Bengals fan. But they're mountaintop experiences, and they're made better with good food, good company, and good drink. And that's good. We should enjoy them. And so the invitation is to enjoy them. I'm saying it a lot, guys. We should enjoy these mountaintop feast experiences. God has made everything good to be enjoyed. This might be an overused example at times, but Jesus' first public uh, act of his ministry, when he came on the scene, was turning water into wine. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly either. Okay, He doesn't show up and say, Okay, because they ran out of wine, okay? So what happens is they're at this wedding, they run out of wine, and this is a tragedy because they're hosting this huge feast and they're out of wine. And Jesus, he doesn't show up and dismissively kind of meet them halfway and bargain with them and say, okay, you lushes, drank all the wine already? Okay, here's your franzia, enjoy, you know? You guys gotta have this. No, he didn't. He made the best wine they'd ever had. Such good wine that one of the partygoers goes to the groom and is like, you're doing it wrong, man. Like, this is not how you do it. You serve the good stuff first, and then when people are properly sloshed, then you break out the less than best stuff. Jesus is all about the finer things. So taste, sense, enjoy the mountaintop experiences. But there's a challenge in these feasting seasons and seasons of abundance. There's the invitation to enjoy. Enjoy the anniversary. Enjoy the birthdays. Enjoy seeing the present light up your kids' eyes. Enjoy those moments, but there's a challenge. One of the challenges is that we're not all in seasons of feasting at the same time, are we? Everyone in the room is in a different season of life, a different season of the year even, and each of us are experiencing different levels of feast and fast, of abundance and want, of extraordinary and ordinary. Sometimes we can observe someone enjoying a particularly happy or abundant season of life and ask, why do they get to have all the nice things? Why do I not get to have nice things right now? I think with the holidays and all the sales, it's easy to think of this Or an easy example is just thinking about the stuff, you know? You're perfectly good with your TV in your room, you know, in your living room. It's it's 1080p, it's nice. 
and then your friend or your neighbor tells you about their brand new, it's 20 inches bigger than yours, all right, 4K, Ultra HD, OLED, there's so many acronyms, and all of a sudden, you're watching Netflix with your family, and you're just bumming. It's just not as good anymore, okay? What happens is, is that when we engage in these acts of comparison or envy at times, it kills the joy. It kills the joy. Comparison and envy are joy killers. Stuff is an easy example, but there are deeper, more heart-level examples of comparison that can really rob us of joy. Ask yourself, what's stirring up in you when you walk into someone's house this season for a party? What thing are you like, man, if only I had as clean of a house or the friendship that they have in their marriage. Maybe if my kids would just behave like theirs. What is it, what are we noticing? Their marriage, their kids, their house, their job? That's, that's the one for me, you know? That's what, that's what I end up comparing. You know, like, they don't, how do they get that job? How do they get paid that much? That's silly. And I think whether we want to know if they're coming from a posture of joy or envy, in our hearts we can ask, are these thoughts coming from a place of action towards, towards growth, trying to draw near to God, draw near to our families? Or are they coming from a place of reaction, from a negative feeling, fear, shame, or guilt, something other than abundance? I find myself thinking in these moments of comparison that what it all sits down at is that they have more happiness or enjoyment than they deserve, and I have less happiness or enjoyment than I deserve. But that's not a feasting mentality. That is not receiving the joy that God has for us. So in practicing joy, there are seasons of feastings. The invitation is to enjoy The invitation is to taste, sense, appreciate. And it's a challenge to let others enjoy without it stirring up feelings of comparison or envy in us. So there's a feast rhythm and there's a fast rhythm to practicing joy. Like I said earlier, there's, you know, seasons of feast and there's a lot of the rest of the calendar for the ancient Israelites that was just not feast. And it's not like they had fridges or anything else. A lot of meals were just really meager in an agrarian society, okay? If you wanted to have a holiday roast, you killed an animal. That's how you got a holiday roast. You notice in the story of the prodigal son, they say they're going to throw a party, and they say, go get the fattened calf and slaughter it, because we're going to have a party. If you wanted to eat fresh meat, you had to kill something. Most of time, is a season of fasting. And how do we practice joy in a season of fasting? There's this book I keep coming back to. I don't reread a lot of books for whatever reason. But there's one book called The Supper of the Lamb. It's a culinary reflection, as the author Robert Capon calls it. It's simultaneously, and this is strange, I know, a cookbook and a reflection on God's beauty and goodness through food. 
he dives deep into all aspects of cooking, demonstrating through recipes just how much thought and beauty God has imbued into creation for us to enjoy. At the very beginning, he spends multiple pages asking us to reflect on on an onion. Cutting an onion, not a very enjoyable experience sometimes. It's a humble ingredient and a very humble plant. He begins the first cut, observing, cutting the onion. You have opened the floodgates of being. Look at the cut surface, the moisture. You have cut open no inanimate object, no inanimate thing, but a living, tumescent being, a whole that is as all life is, smaller, simpler than its parts. There's so much going on underneath the surface. There's so much packed into this ordinary thing, an onion. He writes that there's a sharp distinction to be observed between ordinary and extraordinary eating. Between ferial or ordinary, as he calls it, and festal, dining. Like I said earlier, he talks about this necessity to elevate ordinary things like tongue, liver, and bones. Most of human history was taking nose to tail of an animal and getting a ton of flavor out of it to make it an interesting meal. He says that these dishes not only nourished the body and pleased the palate, but intrigued the mind at the triumph of ingenuity over scarcity. A lot of dishes are like this. You go to any big city across the country, you're going to pay $30, $40 a plate for what was once a really meager, ordinary meal. Shrimp and grits, red beans and rice, tacos. Okay? These were once very ordinary dishes. And oddly enough, going back to ratatouille, that dish that wows him, that gives him that feast-like experience, was the dish ratatouille. It sends him in a flashback back to his mother's farm kitchen. It's a humble dish of vegetables simply cooked. Finding enjoyment in the ordinary, enjoying the ordinary, is the invitation. Most of the year isn't Advent. (laughs) Most of the year isn't the holidays. It's a lot of normal. So how the author of Ecclesiastes says... Here's what he says. He's been looking around, trying to make sense of this whole world, and he says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. We love that first half of that. (laughs) Eat, drink, and find enjoyment, but it's in the toil. It's in the ordinary. Finding enjoyment in Monday morning alarms. Blow out diapers that require a whole load of laundry to clean up and expense reports that for some reason require a more detailed business explanation than coffee when all you bought was coffee. There's all sorts of things in life that drive us crazy that are the ordinary that God is putting in our way as opportunities of enjoyment. There's another movie I want to reference. It's called About Time. And it's kind of a time travel movie, but kind of a rom-com. It's a very genre-defying movie. It's a touching movie that ultimately becomes about a father-son relationship, even in the midst of some sci-fi aspects. And at one point, the father's revealing his strategy for making the most of this time travel ability. 
It's kind of a long quote, so bear with me. And this is Tim, the main character, who the movie has been following his life of getting married and having kids, getting a job, all of these different aspects of life, but with this weird ability to go back in time and change anything and and start a new path. He told me a secret formula for happiness, the character says about his dad. Part one of the two-part plan was I should get on with ordinary life, living it day by day like anyone else. But then came part two of dad's plan. He told me to live every day again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. And in the end, I, the character Tim, I think I've learned the final lesson from my travels in time, and I've even gone one step further than my father did. The truth is, I now don't travel back at all. Not even for the day. I just try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day to enjoy it. As if it was the full final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. There's something beautiful in that. In coming back to this moment and asking, what is there to enjoy here? As if we've come back, like a time traveler. We don't have that. At least I assume so. If this fictional monologue is to be believed, and I think there's some wisdom in it, then we can stop looking for feasts and mountaintop experiences as the only source of joy in our lives. We'll experience a far greater sum of joy in doing so as well. I think we'll be able to enjoy the mountaintop experiences a little more, too, if we've enjoyed the valleys before going up. And I don't think we'll have any sort of white-knuckled fear about the mountaintops ending. We know that there's joy to be had in coming down from them. We might even ask, what mountaintops are we running to to escape the ordinary? I think this takes an intentional appreciation and awareness of everyday life to find this level of enjoyment. There's a lot of pockets in between the parties in the holiday season to enjoy those. I'll tell you one area that I've struggled to enjoy um, and the area that I'm trying to keep my eye out for moments like these. The cell phone... For me, I know I'm the only one, I know, um, is a huge source of distraction. And so I've taken some steps here and there to help it be less of a distraction. Maybe it's putting it in the cupboard, turning it upside down at the dinner table. And it doesn't always work, and I don't do it a ton. But in the moments that I do, to just sit, for me, the thing that it's helped me be present with and enjoy more is just the craziness of little kids. The craziness of watching them play, watching them eat, watching them read. It's helped me say no less and say yes to wrestling in the basement or reading a book when I'm in a rush, to playing that annoying song again and again and again in the car. And each time, it's an intentional act. I have the choice to engage or not with the ordinary, to enjoy it or not. And when that thought comes to mind, 
that I have this choice to draw near to my kids, I say thank you, God. Because I didn't just think it on my own. I say thank you, God, for this boy, for this child, and for this moment. And I'm happy. It's a moment of joy, but it took practice and it doesn't always happen. And I think we can all relate to a certain extent for that. So what ordinary thing is God inviting you to enjoy more fully? What piece of the fast is God offering to you to enjoy? Maybe it's a class in school, babysitting a niece or nephew or friend's kids, a sports practice, playing catch in the yard, a pointless meeting you keep getting mandatory invites to, something that is consistent enough that normally is not joy-filled, that doesn't bring you happiness or enjoyment, where you can say a prayer and receive the moment with joy from God. That's the invitation. God honors the ordinary, and he's giving us the opportunity to enjoy it. And I think that it's also forming us into more enjoying beings in these seasons, in these moments. Beings that can enjoy more. So what's the challenge? If that's the invitation to the fast season, what's the challenge of the fast season? I think the challenge is that there's a difference between enjoying the ordinary and abstaining from enjoyment. Sometimes... We value consistency or predictability in the extreme. We're not okay with spontaneity, and we're almost too distracted by things being lavish or exquisite. One example of this, uh, my wife and I went on a 10-year anniversary trip and it was awesome. You know, that was a, a, a feast moment, you know. We went, we got a vacation without the kids, and it was just like so much time, so much connecting, good food, good drink. And by the end of it, I'm kind of like, ah, can we get back to real life, you know? Get back to the ordinary, to the, get back to doing things. And that's my own baggage. You know, some of you think I'm ridiculous. But that's some of us. Some of us, can't handle it, the feast moments. Paul says in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Some of us hear this passage and we're like, man, that's encouraging for the hard times. And that's all we think. Paul is certainly writing from that place. But it's actually both. He talks about both parts of life. Some of us struggle to enjoy the good times, to step into those moments of enjoyment. Maybe we have a survivor's guilt of some sorts about, like, why do I get to enjoy certain nice things? There's so many needy people in the world. Or my family doesn't get these opportunities that I came from. And some of us, from a place of life beating us down and all of the negative aspects of the world, have given up on any sort of relational or spiritual abundance 
in our lives. Say things like, I guess God just doesn't want me to be happy, to find enjoyment in anything. And so we stop trying. We stop reaching out. We stop trying to get a date night on the calendar. Stop reading our Bible or praying. Stop trying to make friends. We've stopped expecting joy to be in our lives. And that's a really hard place. And I'm not saying that none of us are in a hard spot because the world's full of death, disease, sin, evil, betrayal. But God has shown over and over again in his story of redemption and in the lives of the saints, many people in this room who can attest that God is present in our darkness. God doesn't want us to sit and worry about joy. He wants us to step forward and enjoy it. He doesn't want our anxious restraint either. Our fear that if we actually enjoy something, he'll take it away. Jesus showcases this in Mark 13 when he himself receives abundance, a gift in excess. A woman comes, and she's a woman of the streets. She's a sinner. And she steps into a room. Jesus is at table with the Pharisees, and she comes with her most prized possession. It's an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, and Mark says it is very costly. Those are his words. He points it out. And she breaks the flask and pours it over his head. And I think in our hearts sometimes, we would think that Jesus would react like the disciples react. The disciples say, what are you doing? We could have sold that and done so much good with this money that could have come from it. Mark says that it was a whole year's salary, basically, worth of ointment. I mean, even I, I'm like, man, that is, oof. I mean, it just, we could have sold, sold it and used half for the poor, right? That's a lot of money. But Jesus says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus isn't consumed with the utility. He's consumed with the beauty. And I find that really challenging. When we fail to enjoy the beauties of God and the lavish pleasures and the rhythms of feasting, we step away from an opportunity to be in the presence of God. And so the challenge of the fast is really the invitation of the feast, too. It's to embrace both seasons, seasons of ordinary and extraordinary, seasons of abundance and lack as opportunities for enjoyment. So that's a little bit on how we practice this everlasting joy that's in Isaiah 35, but why does it matter? You know, what's really underneath all of this? Ultimately, the reality is that God, God is the God of the feast and he's the God of the fast, and whether we found ourselves, find ourselves wishing, hoping for a mountaintop experience or complaining that that's not real life, both the ordinary diaper-changing Wednesday mornings and the sun-baked margarita-filled vacations are real life. They're both real life that God has put before us to enjoy. There's another sentence that comes after that verse in Ecclesiastes. He said, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And then he continues and says, 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, this reality. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Every experience of joy and pleasure is from God. And we can enjoy God in those things in relationship with him. God has put them all in front of us to enjoy. There's no feast, there's no fast, and there's no proper enjoyment of creation apart from God. No proper enjoyment apart from God. And that's the joy that is being talked about in Isaiah 35. This endless joy we have before us to practice. Isaiah 35 talks about rescuing creation from its sad state and giving a glimpse of the better future, the better tomorrow that God is creating for us. Verse 10 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's a beautiful picture. And Revelation, the book of Revelation actually fine-tunes that camera a little bit on what that better day is, that better tomorrow. (coughs) There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that comes down to take the place of this broken one. And there's going to be a feast. It says, the supper of the Lamb. John writes, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's joy, enjoyment, in the feast in the new heavens and new earth. Earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, there's this line that says that the swords are hammered into plowshares. And that means there's no war, but it's fashioning the items of war into this ordinary work item something that we equate only with the toil, but the toil will be made new. There's going to be ordinary in the new heavens and earth, not just extraordinary feast moments. They're not going to be moments of lack or sadness or fear, but ones of joy. God's the God of the ordinary and extraordinary today, and he's the God of the ordinary and extraordinary tomorrow in redemption And so there's this weird thing that if we practice joy, if we find enjoyment in God's creation and the feasts and abundance, the fasts and the ordinary, we're figuratively, and maybe in a weird way, actually participating with God and bringing heaven to earth. When we practice joy, we're bringing the cosmic, otherworldly joy and pleasure into our lives and into this world. So today... Let's practice joy through communion. It's a feast. It's a meal. A feast of forgiveness. And so I want us to pause and reflect, to savor and enjoy the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice. Let God open your senses to communion today. It's not just what it means in our head, but what it can mean in our hearts and what the pleasure and happiness of joy in Christ is through his sacrifice. 
And so there's this idea of, of waiting, joy-filled waiting. Joy-filled waiting for Christmas morning as kids and joy-filled waiting of Christmas coming of this new heavens and new earth. And that's what Jesus was, you know, heaven coming to earth. We're waiting for that. And as we practice joy and as we practice communion, we're experiencing a little bit of that. And maybe ask God to do an inventory on your heart. What's distracting from receiving communion in this way, if that's you? What's distracting from receiving it like a brand new N64 in the basement? (laughs) From that level of heart-filling joy, elation. Ask God how you can experience joy this Advent season and into 2023. There's a lot of ordinary ahead of us. So as we come forward for communion, you take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice. There's gluten-free options at this station. Um, And if you haven't received this joy of Christ, of this newness of life that's coming, you know, grab one of the pastors or grab me to talk to us. It doesn't make sense to say through communion that I'm participating in this joy if you haven't tasted that from God. And so come talk to one of us, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Let us pray with you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this season of joy, of practicing joy, of enjoying abundance and lack of enjoying the extraordinary and the ordinary. Please, bless our hearts as we seek to look for the opportunities to enjoy you further in our everyday lives. And may we share that with one another in community here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.